Hello, this is Jesse Weiler for Adoramus Bulletin. In this episode, I speak with Alexis Katarna about a recent article she wrote titled Muted Tones, Liturgical Singing in Time of Pandemic. This is a really great resource for any of you who are trying to figure out whether or not we should be singing during the Mass during this pandemic. So without further ado, another Adoramus interview. All right, I am here with Alexis Katarna, who is the music director and assistant principal at St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Catholic School in Houston. Alexis, how are you doing today? I'm well, Jesse. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to have this conversation, and I think people have been dancing around this topic for a while, but you wrote this amazing article for Adoramus Bulletin in our most, uh, most recent issue, on on music and the name of the the article is called muted tones liturgical singing in the time of pandemic and an incredibly important topic and i want to dive into some of the nuance of this and maybe expand upon some of the things that we didn't get to to hear from you in the article i know chris gives you such a rigid limit of word count and i'm sure you wanted to go past that sure sure yes of course (laughs) there's lots to say on this topic yeah, and I, and I thought this was very clear and concise, and it took all of the factors into account when making a decision about this. And it's it's a difficult thing, right? So we're taking some science and we're taking public health into account, but then we have, we also have to take into account the aspects of the sacred at the same time, and then we make a balanced decision. And, and that maybe wasn't always done in every diocese or parish, um, maybe because they didn't have the resources or we had quicker quicker reactions, but. Let's, let's dive into this, this first aspect of this, right? So the, the first part after the introduction that you talk about is singing as a transmission of disease. So you've done a yes. lot of research about singing as a, as a transmission of disease. So what, what is that? What does the research tell us? And what is the science behind uh, singing as a way to spread this pandemic and spread the virus? Well, I should say at the outset, of course, that I'm not a scientist, mm-hmm. but because I'm consi- I'm concerned with this in the parish and the school, um, it was important to me to research this topic. Um, so basically what happens when we sing, as well as when we speak or sneeze or cough, um, is that we are producing microscopic particles, um, liquid particles like droplets, but even tinier particles, um, to which uh, can be attached uh, different virus particles or other things. They attach themselves to these tiny little liquid droplets uh, that are emanating from our mouth. Um, And because singing is this kind of sustained emanation of sound and of air, there is a sustained production of aerosols during this time. Now, since this particular coronavirus is transmitted through the air, that was a great concern, is um, these tiny little particles um, can be then inhaled by other people, and is this how we're transmitting the disease? And so the research um, really, especially last spring, um, by May, had led to these conclusions. And that's when a lot of people got very concerned. Okay, well, we have large groups of people sitting together in the church on Sunday morning, spreading aerosols all over the place. Um, You know, here at our parish, we have over 11,000 families at our parish. And so just imagine at our 11 different masses, all of these people sitting around spreading aerosols into the air. Um, 
And so the question was, is it correlated with loudness of singing? Is it correlated um, with distance between people? Um, is there a difference between speaking and singing? Um, and what is that difference? And so there have been a, a number of studies that have addressed these particular issues. Uh, so one of the one of the studies that I mentioned in there is the the continued studies out of Boulder, um, because a whole a group of organizations together initiated this set of studies. Um, this is. Uh, they initiated a webinar first to discuss the science behind this, and this was hosted by the National Association of Teachers of Singing, the American Choral Directors Association, etc., asking what does this say about our art form? Can we, can we continue making music together? Um, and so a group of those organizations and another over 120 other organizations came together um, to work on a series of studies through the University of Colorado in Boulder. Um, and so they released their initial results in July and they've had a, a couple of follow-up results afterwards to look at uh, not only singing, but you know, aerosol production when you play a woodwind instrument um, as well. So uh, I would imagine that <laughs> There's a lot of variables here, right? So, like you mentioned, loudness, but also the type of song. So, so let's talk about liturgical music, like Gregorian chant, which has pride of place. It's often, um, it's often, it's it's basically like sung speech is a, is a way people describe Gregorian chant. So, if if this is a sung speech, would it would it mean that there's less opportunity for transmission for Gregorian chant than let's say maybe operatic music or something like that? Right. This is part of the question about loudness or even pitch, you know, is a very high soprano more likely to spread disease than a bass or something. Um, and so when you look at liturgical music, just the sung responses, the mass even first as our as our basis, is that incredibly loud? Is that very sustained? Well, no, like you say, it's sung speech. So when we respond, amen, amen, it's really on the lightness of the breath. It is not this strong, loud, full amen with like a, you're producing a, a whole bunch of sound to everyone around you and sustaining it and trying to project across the entire building. It's not about being heard individually. It's about this response of the whole body together. And that's why you'll notice that a lot of people, they don't put a lot of effort into that, singing those responses, but they don't need to because it is on the lightness of this breath. Um, it is an elevation of our speech into this uh, different plane, uh, into sort of a different mode of communication. And so when then you take the chants, either English chants or Gregorian chant in Latin, um, it involves the same kind of vocal production. You want it to happen on the lightness of the breath. Um, I talk with my singers about um, you know, straight tone and light singing. It doesn't have a lot of vibrato and nothing is really sustained uh, because the word is the most important here. Uh, so it will be sung in a very, very light way. Um, and that is, that's one of the questions um, that was dealt with in those, the German studies that I mentioned. Um, one of the professors in the, the Munich study talks about the idea that uh, singing isn't about expelling large amounts of air suddenly or in quick motion. Really, uh, he says in that study that the art of singing is to move as little air as possible and still produce a beautiful, powerful sound. 
So when we look at the chance of the mass, I think it really seems to fit into that category. Um, and this is going to be this is going to be very different than other types of singing as a soloist, uh, where you might want to project uh, a large amount, a large volume uh, across a larger space. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, what, what's the what's the point of this anyway? So wh why does it even matter that we're singing at the mass if, if the goal is to be healthy and safe? Shouldn't that take a precedence over maybe something that is. Uh, some people might call a preference <laughs> as to how much you sing in the mass, even though we, you and I both know the church has something different to say. But what, what is that? What's the importance of singing in the mass in the first place? And why do we need to have these conversations about whether or not we should remove singing or add singing? Right. So the question of singing in the mass, you know, it's funny when we use the, the, the context of taste. Um, when we start talking about taste, we start to move a little bit further and further away about actually talking about the liturgy, uh, because this is something that is universal. Um, it is in common for all of us. And so it really can't be any one of our particular tastes uh, specifically. So if you whether you like singing a lot at mass or don't like singing a lot at mass is not really the question. Uh, one of the questions here is spiritual goods. Um, not only our physical health to be prized, but also our spiritual health. Looking at the nature of the sacred liturgy, it, it is in itself sung. So it is not a question of should we sing the Mass or not, but that the Mass is sung, and that there happen to be times where we don't sing it. Um, why is it sung? Well, it is sung because this is an efficacious way of clothing the liturgical text, making it more, uh, making it more, not, I don't want to use the word palatable, but able to be received by the listener, by the receiver of the word of God. And its ends are really actually the same as the liturgy itself. It contributes to our sanctification and it gives glory to God. This is why we sing in the liturgy. It is intimately associated with the text. It's not some kind of add-on or extra. And I think that's where the where some of the misunderstanding comes in. If we see it, the music in the liturgy as something that we can add to the liturgy or take away, then we don't see it as something that is actually essential. But the church calls it integral to the liturgy. Integral means that it, it, sh it should be there. It must be there. It must be a part of it. At least it needs to be a consideration. And so that's, that's the reason why actually I wanted to write this article is rather than dismiss this outright, we have to say, no, 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 liturgical music must remain a consideration. Now let's ask questions about how. How is that possible? Right. So, so you talk about having a reasoned decision and, and you're also talking about things that are uh, integral, right? So uh, some would argue that the, the procession uh, of the gifts are, that's integral to the sacred liturgy. But we don't see that anymore because it's, a, it's somebody walking up and then taking something that's in their hands and handing it to somebody else without sanitizing. So a lot of times we're seeing the gifts already pre-prepared on a side altar and only the celebrant is using those or touching those and have all these other things. So how do we determine what is uh, more integral than something else to then create this level of things that, okay, this is so important 
that we cannot remove it, or this <laughs> this is important and we shouldn't remove it, but because of you know the science, we need to reconsider this. So how do we make those reasoned decisions when factoring in both the science and the theology of this? I think this is a great question. It's really the issue that needs to be dealt with, perhaps maybe on a more local level, um, not necessarily a, a universal pronouncement here, but we can look to what the church has given us um, in her teaching, in the, the documents that we can study, um, to see music's importance in the sacred liturgy and to really understand where this comes from, that it's not something to be removed or sort of optional. Um, and so when we look at, for instance, you know, Sacrosanctum Concilium, or we look at Musicum Sacrum, the, the instruction on music in the liturgy uh, from 1967, we understand that liturgical worship is given a more noble form when celebrated in song. Um, Bishop Olpsnet has a great line about this where he talks about the liturgy becoming more true to itself and everything else in the liturgy becoming more properly ordered when the mass is sung. When you read things like that, when you receive things like that from the church's tradition, from her teaching, you have to start to wonder, well, then is this something that I can sort of remove and just wait for another time to be put back in? Um, I think when we see that, we have to ask other questions about, okay, well, maybe I can't do it in the same way. Maybe we're not going to have full voice congregational hymnody at this time. Um, Perhaps, you know, we have a very small church building or a lot of people in our community are uncomfortable with it. Um, okay, I'm not saying that we should be reckless <laughs> and ignore, uh, you know, any kind of uh, scientific evidence or health warnings in this, in this regard. Um, but we can ask the question, okay, where can music be present? Is it these simple chanted responses? Is it the possibility of having a cantor um, being present here uh, so that we are fully engaged in all of the richness of the liturgical signs, including the audible signs of the sacred liturgy. You know, I don't think we would say, well, I don't know if it would be a health concern, but we're going to remove, you know, crucifixes because it's a health concern from the building. Well, that would be very strange because we'd all say, well, we recognize the Catholic Church by the fact that there, you know, there's a an altar and a cross and two or, or let's and... <laughs> let's just say ki adoring or kissing the cross on good friday i mean oh this is you a know, great that, question that that's something where we're you know we're actually now even even before the pandemic people were taking you know a corporal or something and wiping away where wiping people would kiss uh but i think scientifically we know that only does some so much uh but right, that's right. that's probably going to be removed yeah, so that's one of the, the sort of adaptations for this triduum in the pandemic time is the possibility of the option that exists already in, anyways in the Missal of holding up uh, the cross on Good Friday to be adored by everyone at once rather than individually coming forward um, to adore the cross. Uh, that is an adaptation already that's present there, but also an option that exists. I don't think, though... Um, that the idea of having singing less masses is really an option that exists. Yes, we do have red masses in the sense that there can be a mass without music. But when you look at Sundays and solemnities and the feast days of the church, uh, the way that these are described is not music less, uh, but music full. And so we need to ask the question of, well, no, 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 we, 
like on Good Friday, we are still adoring the cross. Mm-hmm. We didn't eliminate adoring the cross just because we can't kiss it, let's say. So, okay, maybe we're not going to all sing together at the same time, but that doesn't mean we're eliminating liturgical music from the question here. Absolutely. Um, and so that's yeah. why I propose some options, you know. Yeah, and you don't necessarily go into this, but I, I just figured I'd ask you with the your music background. So, you know, we have a solution for some of these things, which is to wear a mask, right? And you, you had told me before that you have a scola that's entirely masked. You have a masked scola, which kind of sounds like a show I would see on Fox. Uh, which, which scola <laughs> is this? Uh, check it out. Uh, what, what does that do from a singer's perspective and from a conductor's perspective? Are there different things you have to do as a singer uh, to maybe because your, your voice might be a little more muffled, you have to uh, try a little harder with your diction and enunciation uh, to enunciate. What do you have to do as a singer to maybe break through that mask barrier to make sure that you're still you still sound like this uh, like this heavenly choir that we're supposed to hear? You're right that if this is a, it is a challenge for the singer, it's a challenge for the conductor. And I'd say one thing on on both points: the mask is. Uh, a barrier in a lot of ways to the normal type of communication that you have in choir. Um, And so as a singer, um, yes, maybe your sound is more muffled and so you have to have a lot more energy in terms of your diction, which then increases your possibility of this aerosol transmission, right? Because you have this force behind your sound. So um, of course, different groups have come up with uh, different styles of singers' masks that give some space in front of the mouth to allow for resonance. Um, and diction production uh, that are multiple layers, you know, to to really um, try to impede uh, aerosols from escaping from the mask. Uh, One of the other issues is when you breathe in, and um, I know many singers have had this experience, if the mask isn't fitted, you know, so that it sort of sticks out from the mouth that you end up sucking in the the mask against the mouth. You don't want to use a plastic bag for sure as your mask. (laughs) And it it comes right into your mouth like... (laughs) you know, against your face, and then your breathing is stifled, sort of, and so then you can't take a, a, a nice enough breath uh, to be able to accomplish this phrase in a beautiful and lyrical way. Um, so you have, you certainly have the vocal production difficulty, but I would also say as a conductor, um, a lot of the communication that you have with your choir is nonverbal. Um, it, certainly it is with your hands, but it is also communication with your face. And when a large portion of your face is covered, your, your choir members cannot see you. They can see your eyes. And so I feel like I've, I've worked uh, even more to communicate with my eyes and my hands so that my singers understand what I'm asking of them so that we can be together, uh, so that we really can join with this angelic choir. Um, but they're used to looking at your mouth. So mm-hmm. it's a whole other layer of communication that we've sort of removed from the the nonverbal aspect of music making as a group, um, and that's really been a that's really been a barrier. Well, I think uh, you know the one thing we can all agree on is that it's worth giving it a shot to try and you know go past these obstacles to get past them to figure out how we can do those things, and if it becomes an absolute necessity for 
public health reasons, yes, we obviously have to factor those in. But I think the concern that you expressed in your article and that a lot of people are expressing is that how much are we sacrificing by just being reactive and saying, no, 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 we can't do this because it probably is worse. And so um, those aren't the best responses. And to be reasoned and to be able to take in all those factors is incredibly important. So again, thank you for, for this article. It's incredibly fascinating. And if you want to read this article, you can go to adoramus.org. Uh, and again, Alexis, thank you so much for your time and, uh, and your talent here. And we hope to, to hear back from you again and to have you as a, as a writer for Adoramus. Thank you so much, Jesse. God bless.